Hey, what's good, podcast listeners? Before we jump into the new episode, um, quick promo. Um, if you want to know how to bring storytelling into a UN intervention, um, learn more about the UN system, join the free online course. It's 100% free, um, Project Access Online, part of the legacy of a friend, mentor, and fairy godmother of the of uh, Indigenous peoples, um, the late Pamela Craft. Um, go to linktree slash gomuluku. So that's linktr.ee slash gomuluku and join um, everyone. Um, we already have over a thousand participants already. Um, you can join before April 8th. Uh, so make, make sure you sign up before that. Um, and you'll get me as your coach as well. Um, so l- very much looking forward to it. And uh, for now, enjoy the new episode. This is the Gomaluku Podcast. All right. Um, good morning, good evening, uh, good afternoon, everyone that is listening, uh, either in the clubhouse room or um, later on on the podcast. I uh, really appreciate you tuning in, tuning in. Um, uh, but it is uh, an amazing opportunity, obviously, because um, I get to sit down with a very good friend of mine, um, not only a international law practitioner, but also um, a um, yeah, uh, Pacific Islander as well, and a dare I say, in a, uh, um, a Star Wars aficionado like myself, uh, Clement Yo Mulalap um, from Federal States of Micronesia, um, but he likes to be called Yo. So if you uh, approach him, you talk to him, um, 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 yeah, call him Yo. And yeah, we'll, we're going to talk about um, yeah, the oceans, um, what, we're do- what the UN is doing to protect it, um, how we are involved. Obviously, um, um, because you tuned in, you know, um, as well as, uh, as we do, that the oceans are, aren't a no man's land uh, from these people's point of view. Uh, we have thousands of years of relationships with the ocean. Uh, and so it, the biodiversity of it um, is super important. Um, it is, we know it as our backyard um, from the back of our hands. Um, the UN right now, and, and I'm sure Yo will talk more about it, uh, is creating a, a, a legally binding treaty um, to protect the oceans, um, which from an indigenous point of view, like we're, we're very skeptical, skeptical about treaties. There are many broken treaties, but um, the good thing is indigenous peoples, um, at least from our point of view, we are early in the process um, and, uh, and which gives us the opportunity to introduce um, our ethic, ethics as a, as a standard, or at least our standard, and step-by-step step into the, the whole thing. Um, I said early because by coincidence, uh, by coincidence, um, Yo and I got acquainted. Um, and by coincidence, he, well, not, no, it's not, probably not by coincidence. Um, he introduced me and through me, the Indigenous Peoples Caucus or Coordination Meeting, to the BBNJ, uh, so that's the legally binding treaty that's now being negotiated by uh, short for biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction. So we're talking about the high seas and on this one. And yeah, I think I think um, when we talk about origin story, um, at least for me, that is the or- origin story how I got involved uh, with the with the BBNJ. Um, I said, was it like frozen yogurt at the at the at the lunchtime at um, the climate change? Um, I remember you sat at the table, joined it. I joined you at the table, didn't know each other, and we started talking. I can't remember what the conversation was, though. Do you remember it? Um, well, yes, it was frozen yogurt in that dining room. Um, and I will have to maybe slightly modify this origin story. You know how we retcon things all the time. There's a slight modification here uh, because it was not a total coincidence that you and I uh, chatted. Um, I had actually attended quite a few UN meetings that you had participated in, especially in the negotiations for the local communities and indigenous peoples platform and its facilitative working group. And uh, I, was, I was very impressed by your work and the work of your indigenous colleagues and friends. And I knew that it was very important to get you and uh, other indigenous peoples involved in the separate but related process for BBNJ. So I deliberately sought you out. I saw you sitting, eating your frozen yogurt in the dining room. And I said, I'm gonna to have to talk to him. So the truth comes out, the truth comes eventually, out. Eventually, eventually, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, I really wanted to hopefully uh, get your, to pique your interest and then maybe uh, be able to chat with you and other indigenous peoples about this process, which I thought um, could very much benefit from indigenous inputs. So that's the true origin story until a future retcon comes along. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll, we'll stick to with that one then, um, definitely, um, yeah. just for the, uh, for the history books. Um, yo, um, whilst we're uh, talking about origin stories, um, maybe uh, for the people that are listening in, your uh, comical episode one origin story of, of yourself, um, who you were as a child when you grow, grew up, and also that people can have a, a little bit of an idea um, about you. Uh, well, um, I have never actually thought of myself as having that sort of comical origin story. Um, even though I've uh, I've had a lot of uh, superhero sort of daydreams, but I uh, my name is Yo, as you introduced me. I am from the island of Wa'av, also known as the island of Yap, Y-A-P, in the Federated States of Micronesia. That's the country. It's in the Western Pacific. Um, I was born and raised there. I'm a native Yapese, and I grew up around the ocean, in and around the ocean. Uh, my house is right near the ocean, and I've uh, I've, uh, I've spent most of my life uh, before I became a professional and now in my professional career as a, as a lawyer, uh, uh, specializing in international law, particularly international environmental law, uh, focusing on environmental issues, particularly, although not exclusively, related to the ocean and how to protect and preserve the ocean and its resources. And my background as being someone from a Pacific island uh, who grew up with uh, major significant cultural and traditional practices and values and ethics associated with the ocean, its, uh, its marine life, and how to safeguard it for present and future generations. I've tried to sort of infuse that in the work that I do at, uh, at the international level. Uh, currently, among other things, I am the legal advisor for the permanent mission of the Federated States of Micronesia to the United Nations in New York City. And through that, I've been able to participate in the BBNJ negotiations, as well as in climate change negotiations and other environment, intergovernmental environmental processes. And, uh, you know, I, I try to bring what I, what, I, what I know from back home, from my elders, those who are still here, and those who have departed to try and inform the work that I do. Um, I wish I had a superpower, uh, but my, my ancestors and uh, maybe they're my superpower at this point. Well, uh, in all, to to play out this whole analogy of 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 comical one on one and superpowers is that in episode one um, the superhero did not know that he had a superpower. So, <laughs> so to, if we're going to play the, this whole we, thing, this we whole are thing. really playing this <laughs> yeah. out. Maybe maybe we should stop. Yeah, we should stop with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I, I apologize for everyone listening. Um, um, yeah. So j- jumping right into it, um, why the whole um, purpose of of this conversation is obviously the uh, the BBNJ. Um, just a quick background, and I'll I'll treat it as a telenoa, uh, yo. Is, is that okay with you? Um, I'll just give you a little s- setup, and then you share whatever you want to share. Um, so, um, um, pr- mostly, yeah, I'll I'll let you t- do the most of the talking. Uh, otherwise, it'll be a, a weird conversation, uh, you and me both. Um, about yeah, what what made the UN create the BBNJ? Um, so a little bit of background, high seas because that's what we're talking about: uh, biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction or the high seas. Um, many, many, if not most of you know that it holds yeah some of the greatest reservoirs of biodiversity, um, covering um, two thirds, um, almost seventy percent of the world's oceans. However. Um, only 1% is protected. Um, and so to fill that governance gap, the UN is, has started the negotiations on a international legally binding instrument uh, to, for the conservation and sustainable use of areas beyond national jurisdiction. Um, yeah, so that there's more coherence, um, coordination and cooperation amongst the various actors in, in these areas. Um, the where these people's comes comes in, and we'll we'll go more deeper into that uh, later on in this conversation. Is that 
Uh, for, to do this, we need the broadest knowledge base possible. And so we're, um, whereas it is looking at scientific knowledge um, from indigenous people's point of view, we also want to, um, uh, yeah, the ability and, and also to, to, to the reference to the knowledge of indigenous peoples and indigenous peoples themselves. Um, is, is that a good setup for you, uh, uh, Yo, to, um, to talk about a little bit about, about like the UN's involvement in oceans, maybe touch about the, the patchwork and the UNCLOS maybe? Uh, yes, no, that was great. Thanks very much, Ghazali. Um, so yes, uh, as, you as you mentioned, the, the process right now is an, is an international process to negotiate an international legally binding instrument on the conservation and sustainable use of marine biological diversity of areas beyond national jurisdiction. Uh, one key element is that this instrument, this legally binding instrument is supposed to be, quote, under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. It's supposed to be directly related or may perhaps be uh, um, uh, an implementing agreement of the Law of the Sea Convention. And if, for those who might not be familiar with the Law of the Sea Convention, it is uh, re generally regarded as sort of the constitution for the ocean under which all activities uh, relating to and in the ocean are supposed to take place. Uh, most, but not all countries in the world are parties, are states parties to the Law of the Sea Convention. And those that are not states parties to the Law of the Sea Convention, many of them have basically accepted the Law of the Sea Convention as binding customary international law, at least in part. Um, and the thing with the Law of the Sea Convention is that while it has significant uh, substantive provisions regulating activities um, near shore and in the exclusive economic zone and in the territorial sea of each state party, it doesn't have quite as much detail or substance when it comes to the high seas, uh, particularly the water column. Um, and this was left open, somewhat open in part because of the difficulty of getting negotiating par uh, parties to agree on significant rules for how to regulate the high seas. And so there the, the Law of the Sea Convention does allow for future work to be done by, by international organizations, by groups of, of countries to further regulate the, the, the high seas, including in terms of fisheries. And in, indeed, there was a later agreement, an implementing agreement of the Law of the Sea Convention called the Fish Stocks Agreement that fleshed out uh, how to regulate fish stocks, including those that uh, migrate between the high seas and national waters. And so you still have the, uh, the significant, in, at least in my view, significant gap in how to govern the high seas, not just for fisheries, but also for other activities, including uh, shipping, uh, potential uh, climate change related activities, uh, even uh, to a certain extent, a deep seabed mining, uh, which even though takes place in the seabed uh, and is therefore already covered by other parts of the convention, could arguably have impacts on the water column above the deep seabed, so the high seas water column. And those potential impacts are not uh, directly re uh, regulated, at least at this point, to a substantive degree by the Law of the Sea Convention. And so this was a, a major impetus for why a large number of countries uh, quite a while back, uh, more than 10 years ago, wanted to push forward a process at the international level to negotiate a new instrument um, that would regulate uh, for the purpose of conservation and sustainable use the areas beyond national jurisdiction. Um, and because it's under the Law of the Sea Convention, the United Nations itself is uh, heavily involved. And the, and the thing is with the United Nations, um, you know, the United Nations as well as related bodies, they form a kind of dizzying framework or patchwork really of different entities that try to regulate different elements of the high seas and not necessarily in a coherent manner. Uh, I, already, I already mentioned the, uh, uh, the work going on on deep seabed mining, which is regulated by the International Seabed Authority, uh, but you also have the IMO for uh, that, among other things, for shipping. Uh, you have the Whaling Commission. You have different entities within the U uh, UN itself, including the Food and Agriculture Organization, um, I also mentioned the fish stocks agreement. And then you have these other instruments, multilateral instruments that while not direct or, or while not exclusively about the ocean still impact the ocean in some way, including beyond national jurisdiction. Um, those involving migratory species, uh, those involving uh, even the CBD itself, the conventional biological diversity, 
Uh, you even have the ILO, the International Labor Organization, that has some relevance to um, seafarers and sea laborers and so forth. So you have a dizzying array of existing uh, uh, international entities and, and organizations that try to regulate different sectors and different elements uh, of activities pertaining to areas beyond national jurisdiction. Um, and it's been very challenging over the last several decades to try to get them to work together. And that's just at the multilateral stage. You also have regional entities, regional seas organizations, regional fisheries management organizations, uh, other regional environmental organizations and sectoral organizations that work at a regional level and that might not necessarily be coherent with uh, neighboring regions, uh, let alone other regions around the world, uh, which really undercuts this whole idea of the ocean being a singular entity that spans the entire globe, uh, where effects in one part of the ocean will invariably have effects uh, in other parts of the ocean, if, if, even if it's across, uh, it's on the other side of the globe. So many countries uh, for over a decade now have seen the clear need to have something in place, ideally something legally binding at the international level that will help at the very least coordinate um, or bring some sort of coherence, like Ghazali said, to all these activities uh, impacting areas beyond national jurisdiction. I uh, appreciate it. Thank you so much, uh, Yo, for, um, for that. Um, trying to uh, bring uh, uh, almost a decade of, of uh, um, yeah, the, 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 when we talk about origin story of the BBNJ into, like, into a couple of minutes. Um, really appreciate it. And like you said, you know, it, it is an entity, and from indigenous people's point of view, uh, we're talking about um, the oceans as having a, that we have a relationship with, with a living entity. Um, that particular mindset, that particular way, that lifestyle that we have is something that at least that, that we are seeing um, at the international stage that quote unquote Western science um, is starting to understand that um, our knowledge is has far more relevancy than um, being old, rusty, and dusty, and anecdotal. Um, there's this whole lifestyle and mindset that we have that, meaning um, you pollute one area, it affects other areas as well, is something that, um, yeah, uh, uh, is super important from a native people's point of view for, for states to understand when we talk about like protecting the biodiversity uh, uh, of of the high seas uh, of the oceans, um, so just to put put this um, what we're about to talk uh, the, right now is the BBNJ into the right context. So we have the the UN context, um, the the patchwork that that uh, Yo described, and also like from these people's point of view that it is a living entity um, that um, yeah we communicate with, we observe it, we communicate with it, we live with it. Um, both of us from Pacific have a, a obviously a, a strong, strong connection, but that doesn't mean that any people from mountainous areas or from, from um, um, desert spaces um, uh, um, have, uh, do not have a, a relationship. They, they, they're, we're, we're super aware that everything is connected with one, one another, um, which is because we have that holistic uh, point of view of a look, uh, perspective at, at life and everything that uh, we do or say. Um, all right, all right, um, yo, uh, let's let's jump into the BBNJ. Let's all into the, the inter instrument. Um, um, how will it look like? Um, can you take us through um, this legally binding instrument? Um, like, what are the Obviously, it is a very uh, long and complex, complex document. Are you able to distill it to like, um, uh, yeah, some main parts, uh, so that people uh, have a have a um, under broad understanding of what the BBNJ entails? Uh, sure, uh, I'll, I'll try. And like you said, this is a it's a complex beast. Um, uh, initially, actually. Uh, most of the, the, the countries that were pushing for a BBNJ instrument wanted to focus on a, a particular singular element, which is basically uh, marine protected areas and similar measures. But uh, the, the initiative ballooned over the years uh, in part to attract more countries to want to participate in it. And so at the moment, there's a sort of package deal, uh, so to speak, 
for the, the core elements that must be in the BBNJ uh, instrument. And there are four uh, elements in that package. Uh, the first one, like I said, uh, uh, would be area-based management tools. That's kind of the technical name for them, or ABMTs, uh, which include marine protected areas. MPAs are specifically highlighted in the package, so to speak, as one of the main forms of area-based management tools. Uh, and many countries want to set up a highly representative network or networks of marine protected areas in the high seas to achieve the, the goals of the BBNJ instrument. In addition to that, you also have uh, ele the element of marine genetic resources, including questions on how to share benefits arising from the utilization of marine genetic resources. And the, 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 the whole notion of marine genetic resources is among other things that you have life in areas beyond national jurisdiction that, have, that could potentially contain uh, highly lucrative and highly impactful genetic resources that could be extracted and turned into among other things, pharmaceutical products that could be very useful to the international community as a whole, and of course, possibly make money for certain uh, uh, entities. And so there is a, so many countries are interested in trying to figure out how to uh, properly regulate the access to and utilization of those marine genetic resources, which at the moment uh, don't have any sort of uh, intergovernmental or international regulatory framework in place to regulate the marine genetic resources of areas beyond national jurisdiction. Uh, the third uh, main element of the package deal has to do with environmental impact assessments. Uh, the notion that uh, in order to carry out activities that have some sort of impact on areas beyond national jurisdiction, including the, the life therein, the marine life therein, uh, you need to, uh, to subject those activities to uh, certain environmental impact assessments that would need to be uh, reviewed and assessed in certain ways uh, before those activities can proceed. And like I said, this instrument, the BBNJ instrument, is supposed to come under the Law of the Sea Convention. Uh, but at the moment, the Law of the Sea Convention does not lay out rules or uh, standards for environmental impact assessments or, or uh, substantive or uh, uh, wide-ranging rules and standards for environmental impact assessments for activities impacting areas beyond national jurisdiction. And so many countries want to actually establish international standards and rules that would, reg that would regulate an, uh, environmental impact assessments for areas beyond national jurisdiction. Uh, and the fourth main element of the package uh, has to do with capacity building and the transfer of marine technology. Uh, the law the Sea Convention itself does have fairly robust uh, provisions on capacity building and especially on transfer of marine technology. But many, uh, in the view of many countries, those provisions have not been operationalized to the extent that they're supposed to be operationalized um, in any sense, let alone in connection with activities um, uh, in areas beyond national jurisdiction. And so many countries want to make sure that if this BBNJ instrument is to get off the ground, that there will be robust capacity building in place to help especially developing countries to be able to participate effectively in activities pertaining to areas beyond national jurisdiction and um, that there be appropriate transfer of marine technology to facilitate this uh, involvement. So those are the kind of the four main core elements of the BBNJ package. Uh, but there are also these other sort of cross-cutting elements um, that, um, that some of which are, are normal for, uh, for treaties, uh, including institutional arrangements, and some of which might be more uh, specific to the BBNJ instrument. And I would include in these sort of cross-cutting elements the, the, the issue of indigenous peoples and the knowledge of indigenous peoples and local communities as being particularly relevant to work across all those four main elements of the BBNJ instrument and also related to the knowledge of, of indigenous peoples is uh, the rights of indigenous peoples, all the relevant rights of indigenous peoples that states parties to the BBNJ instrument must respect and must uphold if they are to engage with indigenous peoples and if in indigenous peoples are to engage with the BBNJ instrument. So those are some of the cross-cutting elements that at least in my delegation's view, um, cut across all the main parts of the package. Yeah, I appreciate it, uh, Yo, for for um, laying that out. Um, yeah, one hundred percent. I think that that's also like from the Indian people's point of view, um, and um, that their their full and effective participation, which will I'll get into that a little bit later on. 
Um, if, as you can see, like when it comes to the conservation of the high seas, um, of uh, um, the biodiversity of the high seas, um, at the at the beginning at least, you you saw that there's a, a um, yeah how was it say from from a states uh, the majority of the states where the point of view was leaning towards um, the uh, scientific knowledge as as a terms of reference and as indigenous peoples we um, we want to bring in uh, scientific um, or in indigenous knowledge um, next to the scientific knowledge or how it was now rephrased into the document as traditional knowledge. The thing about um, indigenous knowledge that that a lot of people should should know is that from our perspective, from a these people's perspective, it is not necessarily something that is carried around in our heads. You know, it, it is not something that um, uh, 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 is, let me rephrase that. It is, um, our knowledge is uh, derived from the earth, from the planet, uh, from, from the, the environment. Um, and we are just vessels or conduits of, of, uh, of some of it, um, of this knowledge. Um, meaning, because it comes from the from the earth and from the planet, um, our, the knowledge of Indigenous peoples is very much place-based. Um, so um, the knowledge is different for people that are live in, live in different um, areas or geographic areas. Um, you have obviously you have uh, oceans, um, mountain mountains, deserts, tundras, etc., etc. But also um, um, the the knowledge of indigenous peoples is so place based that, um, if for example, if you look at uh, Tuvalu, um, the knowledge of uh, of the island of uh, Faitupu um, is can be different from the knowledge that is uh, that is derived from the island of Funafuti, uh, even though they're uh, very um, they're part of the same island nation Tuvalu, um, the elements uh, that influence the um uh, that influence um yeah uh, that are influenced as are seen or observed on on the islands can can have a very different uh can can be experienced differently um the the um and that is to illustrate um that um the knowledge of Indigenous peoples is so delicate um and there is also so sophisticated that it's, um, like I said, based on observation and based on, um, uh, um, yeah, seeing and knowing um, the the um, how the how the nature um, develops itself and how it um, um, how it affects uh, indigenous peoples, and uh, yeah, and we have the the you could. Yeah, you could say that that because we were there for since time immemorial, that we have a very long track record of sustainable practices uh, of, of almost anyone on, on this planet. So um, we have a, we have skin in the game. Um, is what I want to say with within the BBNJ um, to say that hey, um, to protect the oceans and biodiversity in general, not all just the oceans. Um, we have a track record. We have. Uh, knowledge accumulated over um, and and transferred upon generation upon generation um, that uh, can help uh, protect the the um, the high seas not only the high seas but the Great Barrier Reef for example um, um, and, and other hotspots of, of and other hotspots of biodiversity um, so to, to illustrate why there um, why in these peoples the knowledge of in these peoples uh, needs to be included. Next is uh, the the scientific knowledge. Um, you know, you mentioned about the, rel the relevancy of indigenous peoples in the instrument. Um, do you uh, do you have um, yeah? How, how should I put it? Um, you you mentioned before in in, in some uh, in some presentations that are there are three um, ways in which the knowledge of indigenous peoples slash traditional knowledge is relevant in in the BBNJ. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yes, so, uh, and I just in my presentations in the past, but also these are formal talking points, so to speak, for uh, my delegation, the Federated States of Micronesia, as well as for the broader Pacific Small Island Developing States, a block of uh, delegations, and many other like-minded delegations in the BBNJ negotiations. Um, these are the sort of uh, three uh, um, uh, main 
ways that we see the knowledge of indigenous peoples being relevant to the BBNJ instrument are mindful that the BBNJ instrument is really supposed to be about areas beyond national jurisdiction, but there are ways where we can connect um, indigenous peoples and coastal communities to areas beyond national jurisdiction that we think are relevant. And the, one of the ways is has to do with the notion of connectivity, the idea that there are uh, numerous culturally significant marine species and other marine life that move between coastal waters of indigenous peoples and areas, areas beyond national jurisdiction. Uh, we talk about, for example, sharks and sea turtles and whales or salmon, for example, in, uh, in the North American region, Turtle Island, uh, tuna, and even eels, uh, which have a cultural significance and which migrate widely. And there is indigenous knowledge about, for example, the migratory paths or how, how these species are grouped, the sort of breeding patterns, how often they, they come to shore and leave, and sort of vulnerabilities that they have. And not just in the Pacific, uh, but also, for example, in the Arctic and in the Caribbean area, area um, and even some parts of Africa. And so this idea of connectivity uh, this knowledge about these species can be useful for the different elements of the BBNJ instrument, including, for example, for area-based management tools. Um, the second sort of uh, main way that we see the knowledge of indigenous peoples being relevant has to do with sort of best practices, best environmental practices. The idea that uh, indigenous peoples for millennia have managed their environmental spaces, including their marine environmental spaces, according to long-standing best practices. And we feel that these sort of best practices can be similar to and be of relevance to similar management practices under the BBNJ instrument. We are talking about, for example, seasonal closures of, of coastal areas or place, placing sort of prohibitions or taboos on certain types of takes or times of the year for takes. Uh, measures taken to avoid polluting or uh, pollution effects on the marine environment, uh, which can be very useful for uh, air-based management tools, for example, as well as for environmental impact assessments in the BBNJ instrument as useful models. Uh, again, emphasizing that uh, for many indigenous peoples, uh, the oceanscape is, uh, is a whole, it's a unitary whole that is not demarcated by these lines on a map that uh, the Law of the Sea Convention has placed uh, into existence. And this, the third sort of main way that we've been talking about uh, the knowledge of indigenous peoples has to do with traditional navigation. This idea that there are still many places in the world, uh, including in the Pacific, uh, that uh, practice instrument-free traditional ocean navigation, open ocean navigation, that take the navigators from coastal waters across the high seas using nothing but their knowledge about uh, the waves, the sea creatures, as well as the birds and so forth to inform the path they take, as well as the stars, of course, and other celestial bodies and how to survive basically on the open ocean. And the knowledge that these navigators have accumulated about uh, the high seas, uh, including wave patterns and where fish will aggregate and spawn and migratory paths. Uh, um, uh, this sort of knowledge can be useful information for the various measures under the BBNJ instrument, provided, of course, that this knowledge is uh, sought and uh, uh, is sought in a culturally appropriate and sensitive manner, and the holders of this knowledge—not just about traditional navigation, but across uh, all the different types of indigenous knowledge—are willing um, and consent to providing that sort of knowledge. So those are kind of the three main types of knowledge that we see being of relevance to the BBNJ uh, instrument. Oh yeah, uh, uh, and thank you so much, um, Yo. And just to, uh, to add to that, um, you said you indicated three main um, uh, topics or, or themes of, of, of the relevancy of Indigenous peoples in this, in this instrument. And um, so when Indigenous peoples, or we started to engage in, in this process, we identified three main principles of Indian peoples uh, in this process, meaning that there's there's it's a minimum standard um, that uh, for our engagement and for our participation, and um, so one obviously um, participation, uh, which is um, within legal terms uh, the full and effective, direct and meaningful participation of Indian peoples in all processes, meaning in short, if you want if you want a catchphrase, is that um, if you're not at the table, you're on a menu. 
or you're serving the menu. Uh, and from an Indian people's point of view, um, uh, we have to be at the table, uh, especially when you're dealing with the knowledge of Indian peoples. Um, uh, we're vessels of, of, the, of the knowledge. We, we, we try to translate that knowledge from that derives from the planet, uh, from, from Mother Earth. And um, so we have to be at the table. Um, so that, that's what we mean with uh, the first principle, the full and effective, direct and meaningful participation of Indian peoples. Um, the second one is we need, you need that enabling environment. Um, Indigenous peoples have um, experienced colonization um, for, for hundreds of years. So um, to be able to feel uh, safe to participate in this process, uh, you need to construct that enabling environment. Um, and that's what we, uh, what we then call the, 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 the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples needs to be the, needs to be the normative framework. Um, uh, just a brief um, explanation of what this declaration is. It is a collection of rights act that of that, that indigenous people should have had all along. There's not a collection of new rights. It, it is these are rights, collective rights uh, that derive from existing human rights treaties that are uh, from the convention, uh, the, the various UN conventions, uh, human rights conventions, and it prof and. If you use the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as a normative framework, as the minimum standard, you create this safe environment for Indigenous Peoples. Um, and if you, because it, you have to do that, like I said, um, otherwise you, you, you get uh, cynicism and paranoia if you, from an Indigenous Peoples point of view, um, if you don't set up this enabling environment. Um, and that's, and this cynicism and paranoia is, is, uh, is, um, understandable uh, because of uh, the, the, the past colonial behavior of a number of states. Um, but if you do, you get trust and cooperation. Um, so hence why this enabling environment is, is super important. Um, like I, and like I said before, our knowledge is not a recipe. It is a relationship. It is a mentality. And, and it is very broad-based and... Um, yeah, and so that is why Indian peoples keep on um, emphasizing or the need for this the Declaration on the Rights of Indian Peoples to be part of this uh, BBNJ instrument um, in, in its entirety. Um, so that in everything that the BBNJ touches, that it um, it also respects the rights of Indian peoples that are enshrined in this this um, um, in in this declaration. And then coming to the third point is. Um, equity and equality between scientific knowledge and the knowledge of indi indigenous peoples. Um, the knowledge of indigenous peoples um, is not old, rusty and dusty. It's not anecdotal. Um, it comes from the uh, it comes from the earth, and right before before the BBNJ and a little bit when the BBN and also a little bit right now um, around the world, you see that. Um, uh, there's this notion that scientific knowledge is the way they go, and um, the knowledge of Indigenous peoples is yeah just uh, um, um, something to to fill the gaps, um, if there are any. And given the sustainable, uh, um, uh, um, yeah, the sustainable nature of of our knowledge, uh, we believe that at least that the what the BBNJ should be doing is also provide equity and equality between the two. Um, so that our knowledge is being taken seriously, our peoples are being taken seriously, um, so that we as can, um, in partnership, um, indigenous peoples as well as member states, can um, um, advance the, the, this international in instrument so that we can conserve, protect, and maintain the, um, um, the biodiversity uh, beyond national jurisdiction. Um, so um, that is in... Um, did I miss anything, uh, yo, in, in terms of how the BBNJ will look like uh, before we um, maybe can it be interesting, um, like the journey towards the BBNJ? And if we have some time that we can um, 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 answer, answer some questions as well. Uh, no, I, I think that was uh, I think that was pretty much it. And I actually really appreciate your uh, recitation of the sort of guiding main principles uh, for indigenous peoples in this process. Uh, uh,
and uh, you know it's been very very impactful i think that you managed uh, you specifically have managed to participate in some of the negotiations and related uh, activities for the for the bbnj instrument to lay out these guiding principles and uh, i will say that uh, from a from a state part from a state side from a government side uh, for Micronesia as well as for other Pacific seeds um, and we've managed to get Australia and New Zealand and Norway to join us among others. We've been trying to uh, put forward proposals in the negotiations that try to capture uh, all of those principles. Um, not just um, very importantly uh, the reflection of indigenous rights including the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples uh, to be uh, reflected and referenced in the BBNJ instrument um, but also this notion of indigenous knowledge, of knowledge of indigenous peoples being on the same level as quote unquote lab coat science or white coat science or Western science and uh, being complementary rather than being subservient to or lesser than uh, science or Western science. And throughout the text, the current draft text of the BBNJ instrument, whenever there is a reference to the use of the best available science, uh, Micronesia and other like-minded delegations have always made sure to insert uh, an equivalent reference to the relevant traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples and local communities right after that reference to science and so that they're all so that the whole phrasing will be the use of the best available scientific information and the relevant traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples and local communities to try to keep that sort of phrasing consistent throughout the text so that both sources of knowledge are equivalent uh, are complementary and uh, are, are equally valid for use in the BBNJ instrument. Uh, of course, making sure that any sort of uh, utilization or access to uh, knowledge of indigenous peoples has to follow the, the proper cultural and traditional protocols, including those uh, uh, reference on, uh, under the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So we've been trying in partnership with indigenous peoples to reflect those uh, principles in the draft text of the BBNJ instrument, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to carry them across the finish line, so to speak, uh, as the process plays out. Yeah, is, is that a good segue to, um, um, yeah, do um, explain a little bit the growing, no, not the growing pains, uh, but the journey towards where we are at right now. Um, I, th I think there's, there's some interesting developments and s some interesting things that we can highlight. Um, we don't, obviously we don't have to highlight the whole thing, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, history of the negotiations to the point where we are at right now. Obviously, we should have had a, a legally binding treaty last year, um, but COVID-19 uh, COVID obviously prevented that. Um, so that we're still in, in a holding pattern, so to say, um, trying to find a landing zone. Um, yeah, any, anything that you, 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 can, you can share um, um, from the ongoing uh, conversations? Uh, yeah, sure. And, you know, this has been a long process. I'm uh, just going to be very blunt. It's dragged on for a long time. Um, it's been going on for, honestly, for more than 20 years, this road, so to speak, to having a BBNJ instrument. Um, like I said, uh, the sort of initial thinking uh, for those that wanted to push the BBNJ instrument was to focus on MPAs, on a representative network or networks of uh, marine protected areas in the high seas. Um, and they wanted to do that at least a decade ago. Um, and even a decade before that, in the 1992 Rio Earth Summit, you have the Agenda 21, um, which, you know, people have different views on Agenda 21, but it kind of tried to solidify this sort of uh, international program of, of action for, for the ocean. Um, and that kind of kick-started a, a long intergovernmental process to try to figure out how to put that program of action into place. Yeah, the 2002 World Summit on Sustainable Development which saw world leaders finally agree to, to, to work toward establishing a representative networks of MPAs. They wanted to do it by 2012, um, and we clearly didn't uh, achieve that. Um, you also had the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity. Uh, the parties there, they adopted a, a target of, of conserving uh, the ocean, 10% uh, uh, of the ocean by 2020. Um, of course, 2020 came and went, and we didn't achieve that. Um, you also had a Rio Plus 20 commitments in 2012, um, and many of which we still fall short of. And you also have on the table the uh, United Nations 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, which has a dedicated uh, goal, so to speak, on the ocean. Um, 
and but we're still, you know, the, the different indicators for that and the targets, so we're still quite lagging behind that. The, the process for negotiating the BBNJ instrument itself um, has been going on at the United Nations since 2006. And uh, that began a sort of working group, uh, an ad hoc, open-ended, informal working group process to basically have talk sessions uh, to talk about all these different issues relating to BBNJ. Um, and there was, there was no formal proposal at that point for a legally binding instrument, uh, but it was just a way for different countries to have some comfort about the issues on the table and see if they could progress to uh, possibly negotiating a, an instrument. That started in 2006, and that actually went on until 2015. So basically a decade of that sort of talking at the United Nations. Um, and it was not really until 2011 or so that the delegations finally agreed on what I referenced as the package deal, uh, the four main elements of a package deal for a BBNJ instrument. Uh, and it was only a couple of years later, and it was a couple of years later, actually the next year in 2012 at Rio plus 20, that there was finally a sort of international uh, commitment to working towards the, the possible development of an international instrument under the Law of the Sea Convention. Um, and it was finally after Rio plus 20 that the international community, uh, at least at, as represented at the United Nations, uh, really hunkered down and put together the framework for negotiating a, an international legally binding instrument on BBNJ. And indeed, the sort of governing framework for that is in a UN resolution, a UN General Assembly resolution that was adopted by the General Assembly in January of in 2015. Um, and it was that resolution that kickstarted a, a, it's called a preparatory committee process. It was a process at the United Nations level um, over four sessions that really took place over a couple of years uh, from 2017 to 2018, in which delegations once again came together and talked about all the different issues that could potentially go into a BBNJ instrument. It was in many ways a recap of what had happened the decade before that in the working group uh, stage. But since we were on a footing that would potentially lead to an international legally binding instrument, some delegations wanted the comfort of a preparatory phase, a preparatory committee phase, um, to, to be able to flesh out a number of issues and give comfort to them uh, for a potential uh, negotiations of a legally binding instrument. Um, and after that preparatory committee phase ended, uh, that was in uh, 2018, the, um, the United, uh, sorry, that was in 2017, the, the United Nations came together once again and finally agreed to launch uh, what's called an intergovernmental conference. To, to consider the recommendations that came out of the preparatory committee and work on the text of a BBNJ instrument um, to hopefully develop it as soon as possible. So the General Assembly agreed to this intergovernmental process in December of 2017. And uh, at least initially, there are supposed to be four sessions of the intergovernmental conference. And we had the first session in September of 2018, the second session in March and April of 2019, uh, the third session in August of 2019 as well. And the fourth session, uh, which was supposed to be the final session, uh, was supposed to take place in early, I think it was supposed to be March of 2020, March or April. Uh, but of course, uh, COVID happened and we were not able to have the, uh, the fourth session of the, of the intergovernmental conference. And so uh, since that time, since uh, COVID happened, uh, different delegations uh, have been, uh, or the delegations have been engaging uh, through virtual means intercessionally to try to keep the momentum going and to keep the discussions going. Um, mindful that we really only have one more session to finalize the text of the BBNJ instrument, which is a very tall task because there are still significant, I, I would say, uh, divergences of views among delegations on the content of the BBNJ instrument. Um, but at least at the moment, uh, tentatively, the fourth session has been rescheduled for late summer of this year. I think it's in mid to late August of this year uh, in New York. Uh, of course, COVID pending. Uh, we'll see how things have, uh, shape out then. Um, and that's supposed to be the last session of the Intergovernmental Conference. Uh, now, of course, realistically, if we're not able to wrap up our work by the fourth session, uh, there will be strong push to extend the work of the, the intergovernmental conference. But no one is really uh, publicly or formally saying that we want to finish the work as soon as possible 
and to do a good job about it. Uh, so that's what we're aiming for at the end of the summer of, of this year. Yeah. Thank you so much for your overview, uh, Yo. Um, it was, I think it's super helpful for people to, um, to see the context, um, like the need uh, for, for um, scientific knowledge or Western knowledge or Western science or whatever you want to call it, as well as it needs people's knowledge or traditional knowledge. And also see like how it's, uh, we're trying to insert that uh, in, into, into the into document. Um, so for so that people uh, for people's idea for, um, so that people have an idea of of, of how things are going, um, uh, is that um, yeah Yo and I we, we work a lot um, uh, yeah we, we communicate a lot on on um, how we can amplify and 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 um, um, both messages from from the Pacific Sits point of view but also from an East people's point of view um, in, in my in my in my view like um, our priorities and perspectives are uh, pretty much aligned and super grateful for countries like uh, Canada, Australia, and, uh, and there's a number, a whole host of countries that are joining the, um, I would say, like a, the consensus, because um, that's what we're looking for, obviously, the consensus. Um, so hopefully you have, a, you have an overview of, of the whole, um, the, the BB&J. Um, yo, if you, have a little, if you have a little bit of time, um, and we have a little bit of time left, um, there's some people that would like to ask some questions um, so really looking forward to, um, yeah, your, your, your question or contributions or thoughts. Um, so I'm going to let you guys in. Uh, how did I do that? All right, here you go. Uh, Mikhail was first. So um, if I, hopefully I pronounce your name right. Um, yeah, please and, um, go, your, go hello, your way. Hello, Ghazali. Hello, yo. Thank you for all the information and the work you've been doing in, around the world. Um, I have two questions. Uh, I'll start with a very simple one. Uh, Yo, when he was describing the uh, BBNJ's uh, package, um, the treaty, he mentioned uh, genetic marine resources that might uh, appeal to governments and private uh, multinationals or uh, private and multinational companies um, as commodities. I would just like to um, hear um, maybe some uh, more information about what exactly this uh, genetic marine resources would be and um, if we have already an established economy for some of them and what might be future alluring, alluring prospects. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I can go ahead and respond, Ghazali, um, uh, rather than wait for another person. I, yes, so, yeah, uh, marine genetic resources, uh, in my view, are the most complicated aspect of the BBNJ instrument to figure out, in large part because there are significant commercial interests at stake and maybe even military and other interests at stake connected to marine genetic resources. Now, the, the sort of uh, feedback, uh, public formal feedback that we've gotten from scientists and researchers is that uh, research and development on the basis of marine genetic resources of various national jurisdiction, it's still very much in its infancy and the potential for significant commercial value being extracted from them uh, in the near future, maybe even the midterm, uh, those prospects are minimal at the moment. Um, uh, we're talking about uh, plankton, for example, or certain genetic resources from fish and other wildlife and other marine life that could be extracted to, uh, for pharmaceutical products and among other things. And the sort of constant feedback we've been getting from uh, scientists and researchers and some government officials is that, uh, you know, there might be potential there, but it's very attenuated at the moment. And we don't know if we'll actually be able to realize that potential. And so because of that uh, sort of uh, uh, uncertainty, we should not be imposing significant restrictions at the moment on uh, accessing and benefiting from these marine genetic resources. So you have that sort of messaging going on. Whether or not that's true, to be honest, uh, I, I personally, as a lawyer, uh, that's uh, and not as a scientist. You know, I still need to do my research uh, into the the full potential value of what of these marine genetic resources. Um, I will also say that as a lawyer, 
my 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 main interest at the moment is to make sure that we do have a regulatory framework in place a robust as well as environmentally sensitive regulatory framework in place uh, as well as an equitable uh, framework in place so that when if and when these marine, marine genetic resources are commercialized and their value realized that we do it in in a proper manner that in an equitable manner but also an environmentally friendly manner and that people just don't pillage the high seas in the manner that they've done before. Um, and so that's kind of the thinking behind marine genetic resources. Uh, I strongly encourage you to, uh, you know, Google various things in connection with marine genetic resources. There's actually quite a bit of uh, scientific work that's been done on various uh, pharmaceutical products, as well as I think some co cosmetic products um, that, uh, uh, that are extracted from squid and plankton and so forth that um, have, uh, have been done and that shows some promise. Uh, whether that'll result in billions and billions of dollars in the future, that's uh, still very much up in the air in my view. Um, thank, um, thank you so much, uh, um, Yo and Mikhail for your, for your question. Um, so yeah, um, uh, Mikhail, if, you, if you're okay with it, I'll, I'll give you a parachute. Uh, parachute. Um, Ghazali, I just have a very short follow-up question, which is extremely related to the answer. Yeah. Um, thank you for the, for the response. Uh, a follow-up question is, in what way would it be possible for marine biologists and scientists to support in any way possible this regulatory mechanism uh, as a barrier of protection for future commerce in this realm? So, the, so in the negotiations right now, there's a lot of discussion about marine scientific research, the concept of marine scientific research and the importance of making sure that the freedom to perform marine scientific research as enshrined under the Law of the Sea Convention, uh, especially for the high seas, is protected and it's not a minima or it's not diminished as a result of the different regulations that might be uh, put into place for marine genetic resources, for the, for the access to and utilization of marine genetic resources of areas beyond national jurisdiction. And so there's already significant involvement of quite a few marine scientists and marine researchers in the negotiations uh, to, uh, to put forward the, the interests of the scientific community. Uh, I do think that, um, you know, I think just from a purely scientific basis without going into possible discussions of research and development, which can lead to commercialization and kind of move away from the scientific the pure science, so to speak. Um, now I think it's very important for more marine scientists to, to, to publish about and to talk about the, the potential for marine genetic resources, uh, for the, the presence of marine genetic resources and their potential uh, importance for the international community um, uh, as a whole, uh, so that any potential future utilization of those marine genetic resources Sources would not be done by a select number of multilateral, multinational corporations for the benefit of the most wealthy in, in the world, but would actually be of use for the international community as a whole. And I think scientists can play a role in, in highlighting the, the need for an egalitarian and equitable approach to any sort of uh, marine scientific research that happens and the potential uh, research and development based on marine genetic resources. Um, and I'll be happy to communicate with folks offline to connect you with different entities that are actively uh, discussing and investigating, I guess, marine genetic resources, uh, because uh, the, the scientific uh, uh, approach to this um, would be uh, of value for uh, regulators uh, if we were able to put a regulatory framework into place for this. Thanks. Thank you, Uyo. Thank you, Ghazali. I'm completely covered. Oh, appreciate it, uh, Mikhail, and uh, thank you so much for, for, for jumping in. Um, we're, we're approaching the top of the hour. If not, we're already at the top of the hour. Um, so the final question I'll give to uh, a very good friend of ours, uh, of mine at least, uh, Katie. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Agazale, yo, oh my gosh, an amazing com conversation. Um, you have absolutely floored me with your knowledge and um, there's you know so many things I want to add on but firstly I just want to say I have worn many hats you can look in my bio it's not about me um, but I've certainly worked in ocean policy marine protected areas and genetics um, and one thing I just really want to 
that cannot be overstated enough that Indigenous knowledge should be at the forefront and Indigenous uh, voices should be at the forefront of any of these conversations. So I would love to connect with you further on this. I'm going to definitely with um, Ghazali, but um, yeah, and all marine biologists, if any of you are sitting in the audience, you should also be researching and promoting these um, these voices. And, you know, it just, to be honest, it really upsets me hearing the way that you even say that Indigenous knowledge is sometimes considered like anecdotal or less than scientific research, whereas I think, you know, there is so much knowledge, power, and scientists really should be collaborating more, um, particularly going into foreign countries. So um, I just thank you for all the work and service that you're doing for the world, for the oceans, for Indigenous peoples. And I am here to support you in any way I can and amplify your voices. And let's get more marine biologists um, involved in policy too and supporting people like you guys. So I appreciate you. Thank you for the time. It's Katie and I'm done speaking. And I'm going to have to head off to the room. I'm I'm speaking in right now. Thank you so much. It's Katie, I'm done speaking for real. Oh, no, thank you very much, Katie. And yes, please let's connect um, offline if possible. And just to emphasize and amplify what you said about the importance of at least marine biologists and marine scientists working closely with indigenous peoples. And this is something that at least I personally um, in a number of conversations I've had in the last several months, in the last year, really, in different webinars, um, I've been very uh, happy to see marine biologists and marine scientists uh, acknowledge the significance and value and uh, active nature of indigenous knowledge pertaining to the ocean, and also acknowledge that they, as marine biologists, need to do more to reach out to holders of such knowledge and work together uh, in terms of understanding the ocean. And, and as folks might be aware, the decade of ocean science for sustainable development that's been uh, launched by UNESCO uh, has, uh, has uh, defined ocean science, quote unquote ocean science, very broadly to include indigenous and local knowledge. And there are a number of elements in the implementation plan for the decade of ocean science that directly amplify indigenous knowledge and indigenous peoples and call on partners and entities to work closely with indigenous peoples for a fuller uh, knowledge base uh, pertaining to the ocean. Um, and so there is definitely movement in that direction. And I amplify Katie's call for more marine biologists to take on that uh, mission. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, um, Katie, for your comments and, and your supportive words and, and you for your um, um, contributions as well. Um, I think because we're, we're on island time anyway, um, just I'll, I'll, pop, I'll squeeze in one final question um, for, for you, Yo. Um, people, that are in, of course. people that are interested, um, that really would like to um, yeah, read a little bit more, any recommended reading, listening, watching material, um, that you would um, like people encourage people to uh, to consume. Uh, sure, um, uh, no flashy videos, unfortunately, um, but I do have a cup. <laughs> well, this is a clubhouse. There are no videos, right? Actually, this is my first clubhouse chat, so I don't know if you actually have videos. But um, I will plug two articles. Uh, they are in uh, Marine Policy, the journal. Uh, one of them, uh, consideration of let's see. Uh, let me try to get the title. I think it's Consideration of Indigenous Peoples. I'm typing right now. Yes, it's called Considering Indigenous Peoples and Local Communities in Governance of the Global Ocean Commons. So Considering Indigenous Peoples and Local Communities in Governance of the Global Ocean Commons. Uh, this is in Marine Policy, uh, Volume 119, uh, 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 published in September 2020. I believe it is open access, and a wide range of authors contributed to, to, the, to, the, to the article, uh, including marine biologists as well as policymakers, and uh, I think one or two indigenous uh, uh, representatives. Um, and it talks about, among other things, how to involve indigenous peoples and local communities in how the, the world governs the ocean commons, including areas beyond national jurisdiction. Um, and the other article that I would like to plug is one of my own. It's also in marine policy. It is called Traditional Knowledge and the BBNJ Instrument, 
Uh, that's the title. Um, it was uh, it was published in December of 2020 in volume 122 or 122. Um, and, I, and I am one of uh, seven co-authors um, of the of the article, and we kind of take a dive into how we see traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples and local communities reflected in the BVNJ instrument. So it would be a more it would be a fuller, I guess, uh, or a supplement to what I chatted about today. Unfortunately, that article is not open access, but I'll be happy to share um, my uh, some copies with folks. Um, if they're interested, or, and if they cannot have uh, access to uh, the article through your own institutions, I, I have a, I have a sort of a, a proof uh, a version that uh, I think I can share. Uh, thanks very much. Um, thank you so much, Yo, and I think um, yes, yeah, um, a lot, yeah, so, some good resources uh, for people to um, um, yeah to process the, uh, this this conversation and put it into the right context and into their own time at their own pace. Um, one shameless plug from my end, uh, come Monday, uh, 10 p.m., um, Geneva, Amsterdam, New, uh, not New York, uh, Paris time. Uh, there's another, um, yeah, a room on marine protected areas, ocean conservation debated. So we're going to talk about um, this and many more things related to oceans from all the different angles and perspectives. Um, um, why they uh, invited me, uh, this coconut, into that that's lineup? I don't know, but I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna happily take that opportunity to talk about indigenous people's knowledge in the negotiations and um, in, in in the BBNJ as well. Um, so yeah, hope you everyone enjoyed th this conversation. Uh, yo, thank you so much as always for um, your 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 work. Uh, always always looking forward to um, connecting with you, talking to you, uh, working with you. And I think I think the the logical next step is to host a room on Star Wars. Uh, what do, what do you think? Uh, sure, I'm gonna have to create a second account so that I can go full on Star Wars Star Wars speak uh, on everything. Or maybe now I'll just use this account. Why not? I'll, I embrace who I am. Let's just go through with that. Be your authentic <laughs> you, man. <laughs> that's what I would say. Uh, that's right. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much for 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 joining this room. Um, have a nice day morning evening afternoon wherever you are and um i'll let you go now my friends that's the end of the episode but there's more um way more make sure you're subscribed to the podcast um on your favorite podcast and platform of course and by the way there are more nuggets of wisdom on youtube so check out my name ghazali ohorella on youtube subscribe and watch your favorite movie movie i don't make movies videos videos um, sorry about that. Um, and again, thank you so much for listening and bye-bye.